Our scripture reading this morning will be from verses 30, excuse me, 28 to 34. Mark chapter 10. Uh, breaking into the narrative at verse 28, it'll become clear in a few moments why we do so this morning. Hear now the word of God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days. He will rise. Let's pray. Father we would ask for your Holy Spirit to. Um, watch over our hearing of the word. Uh, guiding our hearing of the word even sovereignly protecting our hearing and understanding of the word that we would truly understand and believe and trust and obey uh, the things which scriptures declare to us concerning your son. And that in hearing your word, we might hear in such a way that we obey, find ourselves transformed, find ourselves motivated to love Jesus more, and to desire to follow him more faithfully. And that the outcome of this might be lives that would be salt and light to this world, even to our generation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we broke in at verse 28 into the story that was the story about the rich man. And the challenges made to the rich man concerning the question of salvation. In that former story of the rich man, uh, the cost of discipleship and salvation, the inheritance of eternal life, essentially all of what Jesus was saying amounted to this, that entering the kingdom of God requires the king being king in our lives. For the rich man, his possessions were king. They ruled his life. He served them. He could not depart from them. They were the first thing in his life, which he valued more than eternal life, more than having God as his real king. Now, the immediate response of the disciples we read to, in verse 28, 
Uh, they want to remind Jesus that they have, they've done this very thing. They have left everything to follow him. They've given up all their worldly wealth. Well, they didn't have much. They've given up all their worldly possessions to follow Jesus. So they understand something of the significance of what Christ had been saying to the rich man. That the message of the kingdom of God involves a cost. And entering the kingdom means that we must count the cost, the cost of salvation. But the cost isn't at all associated with, in any sense, earning your salvation. Uh, The rich young man believed that he had done a righteous job of earning his way into the kingdom. Uh, He was really only concerned that he might have overlooked something relatively minor, some small thing. Those were the terms of his thinking. His thinking was in line with the legalistic teaching of the religious leaders of the day. His thinking was in terms of addition. What more can I add to my already good life in order to inherit the kingdom? In response, Jesus overturned that expectation. God's kingdom is not about adding to your own life. It's quite the opposite. It's about subtraction. About removing from your life anything and everything which is valued and treasured more than God himself. The rich man had his prime loyalty, his prime commitment, and it was love for his wealth. What he possessed was more important to him than God. So Jesus pointed out what was needed. The one thing that was necessary. He had to subtract from his life that which stood between him and God. Now that was the challenge of last week's message. The challenge to us. What do we still value more than Christ? Now, we need to see that although the disciples had surrendered their own wealth, as meager as that was. As Peter says in verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. In truth, they had not subtracted out of their lives their own personal, individualistic, selfish ambitions. They were still centered in what Scripture calls the boastful pride of life. We know this for a couple of reasons. Jesus cautions them in verse 31. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. And then to further show what kind of grip their own selfish, individualistic ambitions were playing in their lives, the the next story that we will go on to, verses 35 to 45, uh, that whole episode, which begins with James and John, is all about James and John desiring to have the left hand and the right hand next to Jesus when Jesus comes into his glory. Their their whole thinking is about how they can hope to be first. They do not yet see that only those who subtract out of their lives all selfish ambition, those who are willing to be last, Only those will ever become first in the kingdom. Uh, They don't have any sense of what the hymn writer Anne Waring has written. And this this is one of the most difficult but godliest of hymns that we have in the hymnal. She writes this way 
about a relationship with God. Content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. They don't know the meaning of becoming last in order to become first. So in that sense, they don't yet grasp what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means subtracting all pride from their lives in order to have the humble faith of a little child. It means subtracting everything out of their lives designed to make themselves greater, everything which takes away from the greatness and the glory of God and His Son. So now what takes place in this next session is the fact that Jesus shows them the way. Jesus is going to tell his disciples what it will cost him to be the Savior, to be the Redeemer, to be the Christ. Now, that whole thing, what it costs Jesus, is about subtraction. The powers of the world are going to take away the freedom of Christ. They're going to arrest him. They're going to take away all of his dignity because they're going to mock him and spit upon him and flog him. They're going to take away his rights to justice because he's going to be condemned in a kangaroo court. And then they're going to take away his life. And this is the way of the cross. Now, the message for us with respect to the Christian life is basically this. The life we live as Christians flows out of the way of the cross. In this new life of being a Christian, we must decrease while Jesus must increase. In the Christian life, we must subtract out everything that glorifies self in order to be filled with everything that glorifies Christ. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ who became the servant of all in order to die for sinners. And that's what our text is about. The cost of being the Christ. Now we can break down what is said in these few verses into three things about the cost of being the Christ. First, it was decreed by God as the way of salvation. Secondly, the cost of being the Christ is the measurement of human corruption and wickedness. And thirdly, the cost of being the Christ is the price of salvation that Jesus was willing to bear for us. So let's begin with this first idea. The cost of being the Christ was decreed by God to be the way of the cross. Now, we see this in verse 32. Jesus takes the twelve aside, and this is what he says. He began to tell them what was to happen to him. Now, this is the third time that Jesus does this. Uh, back in chapter 8, the first time is on the occasion in which Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, God's Messiah. And then J Jesus went on to describe exactly what he says here, that well, okay, he's going to be delivered up by the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, they're going to mistreat him, and he's going to be given over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mistreat him, and he's going to be crucified. Now, remember, at that point, the response of Peter was, may this never be, this shall never happen to you. And that's when Jesus had to say to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. 
So that was the first occasion. The second time, uh, a chapter later, uh, they're returning from uh, the road to Caesarea Philippi. So they're, they're moving away from where they were uh, a few weeks earlier. And on the way back to Galilee, Jesus once again tells them what's going to happen. This time, uh, they don't say anything. The text tells us they don't understand what Jesus is talking about, really, but they were afraid to ask. And so they ask him nothing further about it. This is the third time. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. This is the last part of Jesus' earthly life. They're going to the place where they're going to die. Now, the point of this, the point we've got to appreciate is this. The reason Jesus can foretell to his disciples about what's going to happen to him is because it was decreed. It was planned this way from before the foundations of the world. Now, this is cardinal, orthodox, central Christian doctrine. That God had decreed that in Jerusalem, Jesus, the Son of Man, would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that they would condemn him to death, they would deliver him over to the Gentiles in order to mock him, in order to spit on him, in order to flog him, and in order to kill him, but then after three days, he would rise again. Jesus knew the plan that God had foreordained. Now, that plan should not have been new to the disciples because God had already established and stated that plan prophetically in the Old Testament scriptures. Biblical prophecy had announced centuries earlier what was going to happen to God's Messiah. And so when you think about this, Isaiah 53 often comes to mind. That great chapter in the book of Isaiah, which lays out the crucifixion of Jesus. The whole chapter is about God's servant, the Messiah, who would be despised and rejected by men, who would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who would be oppressed and by judgment taken away to be cut off from the land of the living, who would be numbered among the transgressors, yet he would bear the sins of many. God had foretold all of this that would happen to the Christ. Or we might think about Psalm 22. It's sometimes called the crucifixion psalm because of how it describes and foretells the agonies and the humiliation of the cross. Matthew records in his gospel in chapter 27 that around the ninth hour, uh, ninth hour of the day, sort of the midpoint of the crucifixion, uh, when darkness covers the world, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's the very first line in Psalm 22. It's the very first utterance that we find in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the rest of that psalm describes the hostility of the Jewish leadership against Jesus. It describes how his hands and feet were pierced as they were nailed to the cross. It describes how he was mocked by the crowds, what he had to endure through the excruciating pain of the crucifixion, and then as well how the soldiers gambled for his clothing. All of that happened to Jesus. All of that had been foretold. All of that had been decreed to happen to Christ. But then Psalm 2. This psalm is a fascinating, significant aspect 
of God decreeing what would happen to Jesus. Because Psalm 2 is quoted for us, the first part of the psalm, the first two verses, in Acts chapter 4. The early church actually turned to this psalm as the basis of a prayer which they pray in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 24 and lasting to verse 30. So here's their prayer. They saw this psalm as foretelling what was going to happen to Jesus. So listen to their prayer. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, the first two verses. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Then they go on to pray, having quoted from Psalm 2, the first two verses. Then they go on to pray this, this way in verse 27 of chapter 4 of Acts. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, meaning whom you made the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The disciples understood very well that the suffering of Jesus, the cost of going to the cross, was by God's predestinating decree. As the disciples declared in their prayer, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel all did what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur, to take place against Jesus. Now, this passage is one of the most theologically significant in all of the New Testament concerning God and God's ways. But here's one very important personal application all of us can take with us. If the most evil act in all of human history, and there was no more evil action by the wickedness of human heart than the killing of Jesus, you need to get your theology at that point and recognize, as we'll show later, there was nothing more evil done in all of human history than the crucifixion of Jesus. Nothing. Ever. If that puzzles you, you need to think through what the crucifixion of Jesus actually means, actually was. We'll we'll speak to that in a moment. But if the most evil act in all of human history, the killing of Jesus, was inside of God's predestinating plan for the salvation of the world, then you and I must believe that every other evil every other evil less than what happened to Jesus. All of this still lies within God's sovereign control and plan over the world. There's comfort in that thought. We see the outbreaking of evil in every possible way in this world. 
And sometimes, sometimes we think, God, how could you allow this to happen? Meaning, it means this, if we really question, how could you allow this to happen? What we're really saying is, God, even you can't bring anything good out of this. But you see, God, out of the worst evil that ever happened in this world, the killing of his son, brought the greatest good that this world could ever know. The forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, everlasting life with God himself. There's comfort in that thought. It's where we place our faith and trust. The world is never outside of God's sovereign control. We know this because the way of the cross, the cost of being the Christ, was decreed by God. Now, the second thing we find in this passage in these verses is is that the cost of being the Christ exposes the wickedness of human sin. There's nothing in all of Scripture that exposes the wickedness of human sin more than the death of Jesus. Why is this? Well, Jesus went to the cross it exposing the wickedness of human sin in two particular ways. First, think about this. Human beings, common, ordinary human beings, killed the only good human being to walk the world since the fall of the human race. Remember, the rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus responds to him and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And what we recognized last week was either you recognize that I am God because I'm good, or you don't even really understand what goodness is all about because you think you're good just like I'm good. You think you're a good legalistic following Jew, and you think I'm a good teacher. You're using... So either it's one or the other. Either you understand what goodness is, and you recognize that I am God, or you don't understand goodness at all. And the truth is, the world does not understand goodness. Because everyone has a tendency to overestimate their good standing with God. And to underestimate how holy and good God is is. Now, here's what we see in the cross of Christ. That human beings conspired together to kill the only truly good human being who ever walked this world since the fall of our first parents. It was even the religious leaders who claim to know the scriptures who delivered up Jesus, who then condemned as guilty the only one who was ever truly innocent, who gave him over the Gentiles to mock and spit on him, flog him and kill him. There's no clearer picture of how warped and wicked human beings are than the killing of Jesus. The perfect human being shows up in history. He walks among his Jewish brethren. He never sins. He never treats anyone in any manner that's ever wrong. 
he shows, he demonstrates clearly what love and true mercy happen to be. This person becomes hated. This person becomes rejected. And the leaders of the Jews easily lead the multitudes to cry out before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, give us the murderer Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Now, in Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he shows, he tells the Jewish people in his audience, he tells them that the cross has exposed their wickedness. This is what he says in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is indicting the common people of Israel as participators and perpetrators in the crucifixion and killing of Jesus. Now, in reflecting upon this, one of the great German hymn writers in the early 17th century, Johann Hermann, he composed these words. You can find them in the Trinity Hymnal number 248. But this is what he says. Ah, holy Jesus, how have you offended that man to judge you has and hate pretended by foes derided by your own rejected, O most afflicted? Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was who denied thee. I crucified thee. Hermann's point is this. The evil which shows up in the crucifixion of Jesus, he sees himself as party to it. He also belongs to the evil of the human race which put Christ to death. He identifies with those who denied Christ. He identifies with those who crucified him. And so it must be for all of us. Evil clearly shows up in how it treats what is truly good. Evil manifests its true character when you see how evil will treat the one who was perfectly good. Now, a second way that the, the cross exposes the depth of human wickedness is that only the death of the Son of God can make atonement for sin. Jesus goes to the cross because there is no other way for sinful human beings to be reconciled to God. The moral debt is more than any human being can possibly pay. It's an infinite debt because it has violated the, the, holy, the infinitely holy will of an infinite God. Therefore, only an infinite payment can satisfy this debt. No mere human being can make this payment. 
So the only one who can pay the debt for human sin must himself be an infinite person, but who can also in himself suffer the penalty. And that one, of course, is the Son of God, Jesus, who is God and man, who is the Word made flesh. Only the death of the infinitely perfect Son of God can make atonement for our sin because that is how great sin is. That is how sinful the human race is before a holy God. This is our heritage because our sin was put upon Jesus. Now, lastly, the cost of being the Christ reveals what Jesus was willing to pay, what he was willing to suffer for us, for our sake. The, the trajectory of the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross terminates on us. What was Jesus willing to suffer in order to be the Christ, the Savior of us? So think about his willingness to pay that cost. And the first thing we have to recognize is the scriptures point out in, in a multitude of ways that this was not humanly an easy thing to do. And Jesus was fully human. To betray by one of his disciples with a kiss, to be delivered up by the priestly leaders so that he surrenders his freedom, to be condemned falsely when he alone could plead innocence and righteousness, to be given over to the Roman soldiers who had no respect for Judaism, the religion of Israel, the scriptures, or the messianic promises, to be mocked by them, to be spat upon by them, to be flogged by them, and then to be crucified by them. All of this Jesus knew ahead of time, that he would suffer all of this. This is why during his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayers were prayed, according to what Luke tells us, in agony. His sweat became like great drops of blood. Even angels had to come from heaven down to minister to him, to strengthen him. He said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. And he said to his father, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There was never a deeper agony of heart and soul than this. He did this for us. Further, Jesus knew that he would face something far worse than this human emotional and psychological suffering, even far worse than the physical suffering of the crucifixion itself. Because on the cross, Jesus would bear the weight of human sin upon his sinless soul. Sin separates from God. And for the first time in all of his eternal existence, 
the Son of God would experience an alienation from His Father. Now, you and I can't understand this. But we know that what Jesus suffered was the weight of our guilt for our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to put Him to grief. And for this reason, Jesus would cry out upon the cross, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Now this was the cost that Jesus was willing to bear in order to be the Christ, in order to be the Savior. He did all this for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live under righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He surrendered His perfect life over to death, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, so that because of the suffering of death by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the seed of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does this tell us? It tells us how much He loved us. So for this reason, Paul prays this way, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Out of His infinite love for us, Christ surrendered all to the Father, to His wrath and curse, to suffer and die in our place, that we might be adopted into the Father's family that we might be sons and daughters of the Most High. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet He became poor, so that we through His poverty might become rich. This is why for the Christian, we exalt in Christ alone. He is our light, our strength, our song, our cornerstone, our solid ground our comforter, our all and all. Here, in the love of Christ, we stand. Amen. Father, help us, we pray.
to know this love, to know the love of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, so that we might fully surrender all of ourselves, our lives, to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final hymn is in Christ alone. Please stand.